Houston, this is Station. We are ready for the event. Station, this is Houston. Are you picking me up on two? I got you loud and clear. Women of the hour, this is Mission Control Houston. Please call Station for a voice check. astronaut Kate Rubens calling in to Women of the Hour from the International Space Station. When we caught up with her, she was flying off the coast of Japan, prepping her spacesuit to go on a spacewalk. That's insane. I did send an email out of office message uh, that said I'm currently off the planet and unable to get back to your email. Loneliness is a surprising thing. You'd think that floating hundreds of miles away from Earth in a metal tube without any of your loved ones would be isolating, but Kate doesn't feel that way at all. So there actually are times where we pass directly over, uh, for example, our hometown or where we live or where relatives are, and and they'll oftentimes use an app on the ground that that, uh, they can use to spot the space station. And so I get uh, a lot of notes from people um, that say, hey, I just saw you fly overhead. So you actually, in some ways, uh, can feel closer to some of your far-flung friends and relatives. So any sense of, of isolation can immediately be cured by going and looking out the window and seeing everybody on the planet. I want to say hi to all your listeners and thanks very much for joining us on the International Space Station today. Station, this is Houston ACR. That concludes the event. Thank you. Thank you, Women of the Hour. And Station, we are now resuming operational audio communication. I'm Lena Dunham, and this week on Women of the Hour, we're talking solitude, loneliness, and isolation. Fun! During this episode, we'll be exploring solitude in its many forms. Then I'll head home, hotbox my bathroom, not with weed, other stuff, and then create a world in which I am Rihanna and a buttered hamburger roll is my Drake. On and off. Off and on. I've had so much more than a good time. It's meant so much more to me. But I don't know if I'll ever fit inside who you want me to be. As always, the show is brought to you by the demure yet fascinating MailChimp. Do you have a newsletter? You absolutely should. I would absolutely read your newsletter. Unless it's about what you are eating, your dog, your family. I don't want to hear about that. Anyway, MailChimp can help. Um, Over 14 million people use MailChimp. Solitude means many things to many people. For some, it's a respite, a room of one's own, the ultimate luxury. For others, it reminds us that we have no idea how we're going to die or when or where we're going after we croak. I personally love being alone. It's when I'm the funniest, the sexiest, the most powerful. It's when I'm a Grammy-winning country artist and a competitive hip-hop dancer. It's when I'm a fairly paid and totally empowered and consenting stripper. It's when I am a witch. What I don't like is being lonely. And for me, loneliness, that cottony separation from the world, that hollow-stomached soul disease, is most acute when I'm surrounded by other people who don't or can't see me. Loneliness really took hold one particular summer when my therapist went out of town and made the huge mistake of giving me her vacation address. What follows are the letters that I sent her over the course of the summer. Apparently this is only half of them. You can see a range of emotions occurring as I, in my own words, grow, change, and have the best experiences of my life. 
It also gets sadder and sadder because it becomes clear that my therapist is having a good time on her vacation and doesn't want to respond to me. Also, what you guys can't hear at home is that my mother addressed the notes for me, so clearly she was so sick of hearing me talk that she addressed envelopes to my therapist so that I could express myself to somebody else. What follows is a, a medley of notes from the summer of 1997, taking me from Friends Seminary to Fernwood Cove Camp for Girls and beyond. I think what we all really need to think about here is that I was 12 and writing primarily to my shrink. So let's just take that in for a second. Dear Lisa, hey girl, Lena here, writing you a short note to tell you how fabulous camp is. Kay, I'm doing so much new stuff. Rock climbing, kneeboarding, so much shit, Lisa. I mean crap. I feel bad because I overestimated my letter writing time. I have zip not a time and I am so happy. I just wanted you to know that I love you and I'm thinking of you. My friends are so sweet, especially Emily, Val, who is French, and Heather, who is so fab. I thought she'd suck bad. I miss you, Lisey. XOX, Lena. P.S. My OCD comes and goes, as does Sugar Plumpkins. Editor's note, I have no idea what Sugar Plumpkins meant. I think it was a code word I came up with for a fear of masturbation. I'm discovering so much about myself and changing so much. And like there are these guy counselors who like Emily and Heather and not me. And I'm learning to accept that and not have to conform to the guy's dumb Southern standards. Sorry, this letter sounds totally train of thought. But I'm alternating between this and chatting with my bunk. It's rainy and lovely and I'm so happy. All we talk about are our souls and cry, but in a happy way. I am on the path to healing and it feels so nice and intense. Like the best experience of my life. This is my life. I love you, Lisa. XOXO. Lena. Dear Lisa, how are you? I miss you. I was having some trouble sleeping, but it stopped. I got your letter and I was so happy to hear from you. Our garden looks lovely because we have made paths and a stone patio. I've been exercising and my shoulders are bigger. Only two more days until Impact Theater Camp. Right again. Love you. Miss you. Yours truly. Lena. P.S. I really miss you. Dear Lisa, hi, I miss you. Did you get my other letter? I hope you did. It is boring here. Write back. Lots of love, Lena. This letter, things get a little darker. Dear Lisa, it is the Thursday after I saw you, but I felt like writing. I miss you, exclamation point, smiley face. Today, Adam Miller called me a moron. That was a little embarrassing. I also think he's a moron. He's a boy. That's why. How are you? Legacy is having a party I am not invited to. It's not her birthday. She started crying when I confronted her about it. I think she was trying to guilt trip me. Adam also cursed at me today. I hope to hear from you soon. Lots of love, Lena. P.S. Write back. I'm looking forward to talking on the phone. The next year I won a poetry contest with a poem about how my therapist could never love me the way that I needed her to. And the last line of it was, you are not my mother, you will never be my mother. And I got a, a silver key from the Scholastic Literary Prize and shared it with my therapist. And it was all inspired by the experience of running into her on the subway and feeling that she didn't respond to me in an emotional enough way. But anyway, enough about me. I mean, unless you want to hear more about me. But no, actually, let's just stop talking about me. 
Let's hear a story from Dianca London about a type of loneliness very different than the kind I experienced at summer camp. The loneliness of being the only black woman in a sea of white historical reenactors in Salem, Massachusetts. It was just a weird thing, like to hang out in a cemetery with people and like drink Starbucks coffee and like smoke parliaments and be like a black person, like just hanging out in spaces that you totally wouldn't have been allowed in if we turned the clock back. I'm Dianca London, and I worked as a historical reenactor in Salem as a woman of color, as an African-American woman, and things got a little weird. So back in 2005, in the fall of 2005, I was a freshman and undergrad at a Christian college in Massachusetts, and it was located about 15 minutes outside of Salem. The history department and the drama department Together, they had this play that they put on in Salem called Cry Innocent, um, which is based off of the transcripts from the first witch who was tried and hung for witchcraft in Salem. They were looking for street cast members, and I thought, hey, like, I need a job. I'm sitting around in the library doing nothing. Hadn't really made friends yet, so I thought that was, like, a good way to make friends. Like, I'll dress up as a Puritan. I'll make friends. Everything will make sense. Um, so I applied for the job, and I got it, and that's kind of how everything started. Uh, the first day at Cry Innocent, they had us all group up together really early in the morning. We met downtown Salem in front of the old town hall, and they took us around on a walking tour of Salem just so that we could get a feel for the history and the streets. We went back to the old town hall to figure out our characters and our alter egos. They wanted us to like figure out like who we would be in the 17th century, um, which was awkward for me because like I was the only black person there. So there was the question of like, am I a slave? Am I a servant? Like, how do we want to spin this? Like, how PC do we want to be? So I knew that I couldn't be Phyllis Wheatley, who was like the first black female poet who was also enslaved because I just didn't fit historically and no one would buy it, um, even though it would be cool to be her. But I decided on being a servant girl and my name was Zipporah, which I picked because that's the name of Moses's wife um, in the Bible. And she was darker skinned than everyone else. So I felt like that sort of paid homage to like the fact that like, hey, I'm different. Look at me. But also it's a badass name because it has a Z in it. I knew that I would have to be a servant because I didn't want to call myself a slave because I just felt really weird. Although that was it was sort of like a coded way of saying I was a slave, basically, like being like servant girl with like air quotes, you know. And we talked about it and, you know, everyone else was either like a blacksmith's apprentice. We had like a, a cranky old woman who like had her own land. So the first night we had dinner and character, which was really interesting in the sense that we had to dress up, um, kind of channel our inner like Puritan character and we had to speak in character um, eat in character and the food that we were given was like as close as you could get to 17th century cuisine so it was like Blue Apron but like for Puritans but yeah we ate in the dark by candlelight and that that's where things also kind of started to like get a little awkward because I'm super talkative and we were talking about um, Goody Bishop, who is the main character of the play, um, based off of the real Bridget Bishop. And we were just like talking about like how you know we saw her on her barn, we saw her talking to the devil, we saw her like running across the sky on a broom at night, and like all these just really ridiculous things. We were just basically shit talking this woman and saying like she's a witch. It's totally true. And I got really into it because I was like, this is kind of fun. And I like said something about like how I saw her like curse my neighbor's pig. And then my supervisor like sort of like broke character. 
And she was just like, Dianca, I know that you're like really talkative, but you know, this is like breaking the rules of what your character station would allow for. Like you wouldn't, your character would not be allowed to be this talkative without um, ramifications or like punishment. So just keep that in mind that we're trying to be as in character as possible. So you have to kind of keep to your station. And then like the dinner continued and then the um, the blacksmith's apprentice like turned to me and he was just like, you have such a wicked tongue for a servant girl Zipporah. And I was just like so pissed because I was like, what? I can't believe like someone's telling me that I'm a loud black woman, but like <laughs> in 17th century lingo. September moved to October. Things started to pick up because... Salem is like a hot spot for Halloween because, you know, like witches and people being tried for witchcraft. It was like a big deal. So everyone's like coming into Salem to check things out. And we had a lot of tourists. And one day I was in the street with my friends, like handing out pamphlets and flyers for the play. And this like middle-aged dad points at me and he like screams like, oh my God, it's Tichuba, like Tichuba. Tichuba is this sort of, she was a scapegoat for the Salem Witch Trials. She was a slave from the West Indies. Um, and they sort of blamed her for all of the hysteria that ensued. And I told him like, look, I'm, I'm Sephora. I'm a servant girl, not Tichuba, not a witch. Um, but he kept insisting on it, and other people were like, oh, it's Tichiba, and they were, like, gathering around and pointing at me, um, which was really weird. And for them, it was a logical conclusion. They assumed that because I was black, I had to be Tichiba. And so that sort of just became, like, a thing that happened every shift. And I got sick of it, so I just started taking, like, back streets to avoid the crowds. I kind of gave up on handing out flyers and maps, which probably wasn't the best thing since I was supposed to be working, but... It was the only way that I could sort of escape this, like, persistent white gaze of, like, being like, you're Tichuba, you're the Black Witch of Salem. Um, so I just started hanging out by myself and sitting on benches and, like, being, like, overly reflective. But I think in that moment, I really started just kind of experiencing, I think, what Tichuba probably experienced of, like, being in this space and being forced to, like, fit into this one tiny square of, like, what a Black person is. Being in Salem and experiencing that and realizing that Tichiba and people who are part of her family experience that as well, it made me feel a little bit more at peace um, about the whole ordeal um, because it's kind of part of my history as a Black American to be in these spaces and to still be resilient and keep your shit together and not freak out. So I just sort of hid until the end of the season and did not work that job <laughs> the next the next fall. Thank you for sharing, Dianca, you witchy heroine you. Dianca is an assistant editor at Lenny. Oh my. Dianca's experience of being the only black woman in an extremely white space is one that many women of color can relate to, especially in the world of academia. As women of color in the higher education system, the great eight struggled with the lack of support for black women on Indiana University's predominantly white campus. By joining together, they created a sisterhood, not of traveling pants, but of ideas, support, and love, becoming the first eight women of color to graduate with PhDs at the same time from Indiana University. In this piece, you'll hear some of the great eight talk about their experiences. Hi. I'm Johanna Rogers. My name is Jasmine Haywood. My name is Nadrea Reeves and Joku. My name is Shannon McCullough. And we are the, we are the, we are the great, great eight. eight. We are the great eight. 
I would describe the women of the great eight as fighters, people who will not settle for the status quo. Black girls who had various lived experiences but grew into women that really cared and wanted to give back to their respective communities. We did find that we weren't being supported and given the same considerations for our social, emotional, and physical health as it concerns finishing our PhD programs. We would just meet informally and just uh, sort of provide a space for support and a space for healing. They were my family. They were the ones that understood what the day-to-day looked like. They made me feel as if I wasn't alone. Being in a PhD program as a woman of color can be extremely isolating and cold. There's a sense of peace and calm that you get when you are surrounded by like people, um, especially when you're in an environment where there's not of people like you. Part of the experience in earning for a PhD is that there isn't many people that have also been through that process. And when you add on our race and gender identities, there's even fewer. I mean, the bottom line is I, I wouldn't have finished if the other seven women were not in the program. As I think back on our experiences, the thing that sticks out to me is our commitment not to leave the other behind. You know, if there was an opportunity, we would call one another like, okay, we're going to do a conference proposal. Let's invite the other one in to make sure Others felt included. You know, if you were getting there, do we need to carpool? You know, many of us piled up in rooms so we can afford to attend some of the conferences. It has everything to do with the reason why I felt in that moment that it was worthy to have a PhD and that my career and my life would be better for it because of the support that I ultimately found through the sister group. Those were the voices of the Great Eight, eight remarkable women who made history when they earned their PhDs from Indiana University this past May, reminding us we are always stronger in numbers. And now it's time for Tessa Thompson's infinite wisdom and episodical advice. Here's this week's question about solitude. I recently moved abroad, away from friends and family, and on a 12-hour time difference. It's hard being new and not feeling connected to anyone. How do I develop new, meaningful connections with people? What strategies can I use? I feel like I've forgotten how to make friends. This is so cool, because I completely relate. So I'm away right now in Australia, a very, very foreign land that I've never been to. The time difference between here and the two places I all my loved ones, which are LA and New York, is 17 hours and 14 hours respectively. Granted, I'm here for work, so there's kind of a built-in thing where you have people around you. But for the first month I was here, I felt incredibly lonely. Uh, now, I'm someone who enjoys a lot of solitude, so that hasn't been terrible for me, but there's been periods where I'll be out one night and I think like, oh, this is really fun, but I'm not making lasting friendships, and there's been an ache since I've been here for such a long time. I think one thing that started to help me is to relinquish myself of this idea that if I wasn't making friends, that that meant I was someone that like wasn't interesting to people. We can get in our sort of own solipsistic space where like, we're like, oh my God, what is it about me? Everyone is, you know, making meaningful 
friendships and they're feeling like so cool and they're all in like a beer commercial where they feel connected and I'm just on the outskirts and I'm the worst. And the truth is, I think most people feel exactly the same way. It's only in the third month of being here that I talked to my coworkers and we were all going through the same thing at the same time, meanwhile, in our own apartments, in the same building. <laughs> if we had just like called each other and put ourselves out on a limb and was like, hey, I'm feeling really isolated and weird and it's sunny outside. Do you want to walk on the beach? I'm sure many of us would have been doing that together, like in a cha-cha line, just lonely people on the beach together suddenly in company. So I think the thing is to not judge yourself. And also as an adult, it becomes a lot harder to put yourself out there. We have this idea that we're kind of fixed as people and you are who you are and you have your close-knit friends. And so it's harder to say, do you want to hang out? But I think if you can access sort of the childlike space, I mean, imagine kids when they're in school, they're just like on the first day, having just set eyes on someone and say, do you want to be my friend? And, and then they'll say yes to each other and suddenly they just decide to be friends. So I think the more that we can kind of, I don't know, dare to, to be that way and maybe it requires, which ugh, like gross, a, some measure of vulnerability, it becomes easier just to kind of put yourself out there. <laughs> That was Tessa Thompson, who claims to not know how to give advice and yet speaks in perfect, unbroken monologues. What a dream. There are times when we feel alone, but then realize later on that we're actually not. When Julie Metz's husband died suddenly, she felt as though she'd lost everything, that he was gone forever. But she soon realized that he wasn't exactly ready to leave quite yet. My husband died on January 8th in uh, 2003, it was about two in the afternoon. That night, my friend stayed over in the bed where my husband and I slept, and um, uh, somehow we fell asleep. I mean, I was crying and talking and crying some more and talking, and, and it was in the morning. I remember waking up. I was lying on my back, just kind of staring at the ceiling, sort of wondering what was going to become of me. My poor child, poor me. And it was at that point that I remember feeling this um, a presence, like a pulsing organism of air. I don't know how you describe it, but sort of above me, pressing down on me, like if someone were hugging you very, very tightly. It was comforting. And then I just remember some very intense force was sort of trying to pry my mouth open. It most definitely had this sexual quality, like sort of electric, everything's on fire, like you're about to have the best sex of your life. I was being surrounded and like it was penetrating. And that's when my friend opened her eyes and looked over and she said, what's going on? And I just remember saying, he's here. And she didn't seem shocked or surprised at all. I think we sort of knew what was going on in the room. There was something electric in the room. And I sort of closed my eyes because it was very comforting and reassuring. And I remember hoping that he would visit me again that way, which he did. 
When I met my husband, I actually met him twice, and it was kind of one of those things where you feel like fate has brought you together the second time because the first time didn't go so well. <laughs> um, we met at a party, and he was there with his girlfriend, and then he started flirting with me at the party. I was like, whoa, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> and then he grabbed a cocktail napkin and wrote his name and number on the cocktail napkin and handed it to me. I remember calling a friend up and saying, oh my God, I went to this party and this like slime dog tried to pick me up. And yet at the same time, there was something so charming about him that I didn't throw the napkin away. And then about a month later, I went to another party. I didn't recognize him, which I think worked in his favor. <laughs> At first, when he approached me, I couldn't quite figure out what he was after. He was a little preppy, and I was wearing black. He was a kind of man who really took charge of a room when he walked in. His name was Gordon. He'd kind of won me over. We'd been together for, for three years when we got married. And then Olivia was born when I was 37. And that's when things really changed. Our relationship changed, and not for the better. I think he was a man who loved being the center of my universe. And um, after I had a baby, he was not. He loved his daughter more than anything, but I think he did feel a little pushed aside. The diagnosis for his death was something called a pulmonary embolism. In front of my eyes, he started going blue, just like a veil passing over, just going whoosh, like that. As awful as all of that was, of course, the hardest part of the entire day was having to tell my daughter, you know, what had happened. It's like, it's like every parent's nightmare, you know. You, she went off to school, and by the time she came home, her father was gone. For a long time after that, really months, I felt almost like I was sleepwalking. My feet weren't quite on the ground. In that early time, when I would walk around the house, I did not feel alone. I, like, you couldn't see it, I could feel it, kind of in the corner, you know, in the kitchen. Um, just kind of there. In the beginning, I swear, it was the first time I tried to make a steak, because meat was like his, that was his thing, right? He always was um, on about the right way to cook meat, uh, which was, you have to salt the meat before you cook it. And I remember being in the kitchen and trying to cook, and I just, remember distinctly, like, over my shoulder, sort of hearing his voice reminding me to salt the meat. <laughs> it's like, okay, okay, I got it. <laughs> and uh, at first, it, it wasn't unwelcome. At times, it felt very comforting. Later, I felt like, why did he linger? Is that he had unfinished business. He had things to tell me. And then I found out that my husband was having affairs. In fact, more than one. One woman 
lived in my town about a quarter of a mile away. She was married. Her daughter was my daughter's best friend. I was in her house almost every day. She was in my house almost every day. I babysat for her kid. She babysat for my kid. You know, it was one of those. Hearing who it was, that it was this woman, uh, I think I went into a state of enragement. I just flipped my shit. <laughs> I mean, I just went crazy. The first thing I realized is my kid was actually at her house having a sleepover. I drove straight to her house, and she was sitting on the porch reading a book. I think she figured out as I was walking towards her, I must have had, like, the warrior princess face. <laughs> I am going to kill you now. <laughs> I'm going to fucking rip your head off now. Suddenly her face changed as she watched me walk towards her. And I just said, I know what's been going on. And you have a week to tell your husband or I'm doing it for you. And I got my child and said, we're going now. By this time, that, that sense of him being around was quite vague, but then there would be these times when I'd be in the kitchen, and I would feel that presence in the kitchen, and I remember just kind of, on a couple of occasions, just going, fuck you, asshole, like, just leave me alone. There was this feeling in the house that it wasn't private, that, that it wasn't my house, you know, that, that he was there too, and that now I didn't want him there, and what could I do, how could I, how could I escape, and the only way was, of course, to move. He died in January of 2003. In June of 2004, I met my boyfriend. Clark is from the Midwest. He sort of exuded kindness. And I thought, you know, I don't want to be with one of those kind of people like my husband was ever again, ever again. I just wanted something completely the opposite. And I would say, that he is. We moved into this apartment in uh, Park Slope. Life began to have a kind of normal rhythm about it. And then it was, it was January of 2006. And Clark and Olivia were out on a bike ride with some friends. And then the phone rang. And it was uh, Olivia, my daughter, and she said, Clarkie fell, the ambulance is here. And it was in that moment that I remembered what day it was. It's January 8th. It's two in the afternoon. I forgot to light a candle. I forgot his day. He's mad at me. It just felt just like that. I was truly scared shitless and then I ran when I by the time I got up there and I looked at what had happened he'd fallen off his bike on a very smooth patch of road and my first thought was he pushed Clark off the bike <laughs> he was mad his daughter was out having fun you know with another parent and he was mad he was mad about it and um Clark ended up with, uh, I don't know, 25 stitches in his various parts of his face. I, I was really scared. 
I, I actually felt like I thought I'd left my husband behind in that house that I'd sold. <laughs> and I suddenly felt like, no, he's, he's here. I didn't know what to do, but I talked to somebody, and there's this woman who does house cleanings. And for someone who does this kind of work, it was rather matter-of-fact. She had a little spray bottle of water. She kind of went through the house. She did some things. And um, when she was done, I said, so? So what's, you know, what do you think? <laughs> like a, I wanted a diagnosis. for. She said, he was here like that, just very calm. And I said, oh. But she said, I, I, I don't think you'll have any more problems now. What else can I say except that there have been no more encounters. I, I do always remember now. I always have a quiet moment on January 8th. And I do follow his cooking instructions. <laughs> but I don't feel that presence, either positive or negative, around at all. So I feel like he's, uh, he's gone. was Julie Metz on her husband's life after death. Be sure to check out Julie's memoir, Perfection, a memoir of betrayal and renewal. And thanks to Shoshi Shmulevitz, who produced this piece. podcast was produced by Pineapple Street Media and Lenny Letter, specifically the all-female super team of Jenna Weiss-Berman, Liz Watson, Emily Becker, Barry Finkel, and Gabrielle Lewis. Special thanks to Henry Malofsky, Max Linsky, Ben Cooley, Jess Gross, and Salami. Yes, the lunch meat, Salami. Our music is by Andrew Doss, who can play at least five instruments. Thanks as always to MailChimp for sponsoring the show, and thanks this week to TBS as well. Miss you already, but don't worry, we'll be back soon with a little something extra, like second dessert.